0: The History of the World Podcast Written and presented by Chris Hasler Mark Pimenta, the host of the Warlords of History podcast, focused on intriguing warriors and leaders, ancient and medieval, that were titans during their respective ages, where over several episodes, we'll review each of their lifetimes and actions, but also take this further by exploring the surrounding environmental and political conditions, their motivations for taking on the mantle of war. We'll cover what they did, how they did it, and finally, what their legacy was beyond their demise. If any of this interests you, join me as we dive into each of their lifetimes, their worlds, in the Warlords of History podcast. Volume three, the classical world. Episode 73, the Zapotecs. The last time that we were in this area of the world was during volume two, in particularly Episode 31 This is when we spoke about the Olmec culture who occupied the lands of the southeast of the modern country of Mexico around 3,000 years ago. The Olmecs were known for producing and trading rubber, which is actually the meaning of the name Olmec in the language of the Aztecs. The Olmecs were one of the first recognisable civilizations of Mesoamerica and they would have had a wide trade influence branching out from their heartlands on the Gulf Coast of Mexico around the modern state of Veracruz. We can see that the Olmecs depicted anthropomorphic characters likely to be deities and created colossal heads from basalt boulders which had been moved over large distances proving the ancient human desire and ability to move heavy objects over distance in many different areas of the world. One of the later trade partners of the Olmecs before their decline were a people to their south who are from the modern Mexican state of Oaxaca. These people are known to history as the Zapotecs who were able to flourish due to the success of their trade links and they would be able to build a city to rival the successful cities of their Olmec neighbours to their north. The Zapotec city is called Monte Alban and we briefly spoke of its emergence back in episode 33. Although we regard the Zapotecs as distinct from the Olmecs there can be no doubt that there was a cultural connection between the two. For example we can find ball game courts in Monte Alban clearly linking it to the Olmec rubber ball games that we spoke of in the last volume. The lands of southern Mexico were suitable for agriculture so this favoured the growth of the Zapotec culture. Originally it was believed that there were three older settlements of notable influence surrounding what would become Monte Alban, and that these settlements probably competed with each other for supremacy. It's possible that the first residents of Monte Alban came from one of these settlements called San Jose Mogote, which may have been built during the second millennium BCE, and we believe that this could have been the most dominant of the Oaxaca Valley settlements before the construction of Monte Alban. We suggest this also because similar styles of pottery were discovered in both cities. San Jose Magote would have been one of the settlements in relatively close proximity to the Olmec heartlands and would have likely benefited as a consequence perhaps even acting as a link to other settlements further west. So it may have been for this reason that the settlement prospered well. We are aware that the residents of San Jose Magote were experts with irrigation. We are aware that they were constructing buildings using the earth and organic material mixture called adobe. Defensive buildings, temples and pyramids were built there and there is evidence of a writing style. It's possible that the population of San Jose Magote built and migrated to Monte Alban and abandoned San Jose Magote. This is just an educated guess only. There are no known contemporary sources to say this actually happened. We do know that Monte Alban took over from San Jose Magote as the most dominant settlement of this area. One of the earliest major buildings of the city was the temple of the Danzantes. It is named after the images found carved in the stone slabs at the site. Danzantes is a Spanish word to describe dancers, and this is used to describe the humans depicted in these carvings, in their contorted state. But some have suggested something more sinister, suggesting that the images are of humans suffering from illness or mutilation. Once again, it's a case for guesswork, but we can all have our own opinion. Experts who study the images are really quite intrigued by their appearance. The images aren't unlike the artistic style of the Olmecs, and aren't unlike similar images found at the earlier site of San Jose Magote. So this tells us that there is at the very least a loose and ongoing relationship between the early Zapotecs and the late Olmecs. The contorted bodies depicted were quite dismissively referred to as dancers, quite possibly without some deep consideration of the imagery. It is felt that the bodies are more likely to be infirmed or deceased individuals and that they may have been victims of a plague as it appears that both men and women are depicted which may eliminate captured or killed military as the individuals depicted. Also, we see some bearded men which has led some historians to believe there to be a mixture of races but that is very tenuous. The temple itself is among a number of buildings located at the ceremonial centre of the city which is situated at the peak of the mount. Calendar Agricultural societies of the ancient world constructed calendars. The purpose of ancient calendars was to have subdivisions that would be comprehensible for those who organised agriculture within their societies. So we are aware that modern style calendars began to emerge during the Neolithic and the following Bronze Age and the cultures of Mesoamerica were no different. There is a relationship between the calendars of various cultures of Mesoamerica which if nothing else has demonstrated the connection of Mesoamerican cultures and have helped us to understand the individual glyphs and the subsequent calendar structures. So the early Zapotecs certainly did have a calendar and there are aspects of the calendar that relate to the Olmec calendar and subsequent future pre-Columbian calendars of Mesoamerica. The Zapotecs actually had two calendars and this wasn't completely unusual in Mesoamerica. The Zapotecs observed the natural length of the year with a 365 day calendar, but also had a ritual calendar of 260 days and the ritual calendar seems to have had deeper roots in Mesoamerican culture but the two calendars together form a 52 year cycle with each day having a name from each calendar resulting in almost 20,000 potential day names that would occur once every 52 years. And knowledge of Zapotec glyphs very limited without any real ability to decipher the meaning of them all. When we look at the later Aztec calendar we can understand it much better because of us having more knowledge of their writing system. We can see a similar 260 day cycle calendar used by the Aztecs. These special 260 day calendars called a were divided into five 65-day cosillo, which in turn were subdivided into 13-day cosi, with each of the 13 days being called a chi. Some of the day names in the Aztec calendar are named after animals that were not native of Aztec lands, but they were native of Zapotec lands which has led historians to believe that the Aztec calendar evolved from a Zapotec ancestor. So this is meaningful when studying the status of the Zapotecs and in terms of understanding the Zapotecs. We very briefly mentioned Zapotec writing during our volume 2 episodes on the history of writing as an ancestor of Aztec writing with a similar style of glyphs. These glyphs are believed to be logosyllabic, which means that each glyph represented a syllable and so not like the alphabetic scripts of ancient Europe such as Latin and Greek but more like the Chinese script and the Egyptian hieroglyphs and ancient cuneiform. We still have much to learn about Zapotec glyphs but they certainly represent examples of the earliest known writings of Mesoamerica Its implementation may have signalled a desire to centralise people under Zapotec influence with their varied dialects, due to a potential lack of meaningful integration between pre-Zapotec settlements. Monte Albán The settlement of Monte Albán itself has its own story to tell, with its inhabitants lasting for a number of centuries, leading archaeologists to categorise its chronological history into phases. It emerged as an urban centre in around 500 BCE, which would coincide with the period of decline for the Olmecs to their northeast. So we can recognise that Zapotec culture and Olmec culture were briefly existing alongside one another. We mentioned a ceremonial centre on a peak overlooking the surrounding area that included the temple of the Danzantes. The buildings on the ceremonial peak were added to while the Zapotecs occupied this site. So let's have a look at the other buildings there. The population of Monte Alban grew into the thousands within a couple of centuries while the population of San Jose Magote declined. This indicates strongly that Monte Alban could have been a replacement city and that an elite class made a conscious decision to move their residential centre. Further population growth would have required a well organised city especially with definite evidence of competition between cities evident in this area of the world. Military conquests may be depicted at a comparatively small building which has been called Building J to distinguish it from the other buildings at the large site on top of the mound which contains the Temple of the Dansantes. Building J is shaped like an arrowhead and points in a southwest direction and possibly in the direction of Capella a star in the night sky which is the sixth brightest star if we ignore the sun itself. We could suppose it's just a coincidence that it points towards a bright star if there wasn't so much evidence of human regard for celestial objects and the orientation of buildings throughout the ancient world in relation to them. The images at Building J seem to depict upside-down heads who may represent defeated kings. We can also find a ball game court which shows a progression of the Olmec rubber ball game. We shouldn't be in any way surprised to find this as a feature of most pre-Columbian Mesoamerican cultures. The Zapotec ball game may have had its own set of distinct rules though as we can recognise differences in ball courts depending on the time of existence and the place and culture that it belonged to. Another aspect of ancient life that we can see appearing in respect to certain cultures of the ancient world is ancestor worship. We suspect that the Zapotecs of Monte Alban were observing ancestor worship because there are a set of underground tombs at the Monte Alban site that appeared to have been frequently reopened. The chambers of these tombs were highly decorated demonstrating the importance of these particular tombs. All of these buildings were to be found on the constructed plateau called the main plaza and it is thought to have been a place for the Zapotec elite. Those people and the descendants of those people who established Monte Alban may have lived at the plateau where they could have maintained a bird's eye view over the growing population of lower class residents living on the lowlands around the plateau. We recognise that the Almecs were probably conducting human sacrifices and we expect that the Zapotecs were also doing the same with there being evidence of altars that historians suspect were being used for human sacrifices at the main plaza. Zapotec people would have not been confined to Monte Alban, however. There were many settlements that historians have recognized as Zapotec settlements, but they have also been divided into distinct groups. So, for example, the Valley Zapotecs existed in the valley of the Oaxaca River, and the Sierra Zapotecs came from the highlands to the north. The southern Zapotecs came from the lands near the Pacific Ocean coast. Interestingly, the cities had their own patron deities, which is also an aspect of ancient Near East city culture. Religion As well as the cities having tutelary deities, or specific guardians as one might like to view them, there were also deities of the aspects of everyday life, such as rain or crops. This is similar to those early Bronze Age polytheistic religious beliefs and practices of the Near East, and was quite typical of Mesoamerican cultures of the ancient world in general. We have already noted that sacrifices were made to please the deities, including human sacrifice. It appears that the Zapotecs may have believed that they had descended from supernatural deities and so this represented the ancestor worship that we had already mentioned and the elite believed that they could become deified on death as well. It is extremely important to recognise that historians can disagree with each other about the specific notion of some Zapotec deities however. We note The presence of a deity relating to lightning but it has been suggested that the lightning itself is a supernatural force so rather than there being a god of lightning that the lightning itself is a spiritual essence and this notion is more closely related to animism than polytheism if indeed it is correct to recognize a distinction between the two concepts polytheism is the observance of multiple deities whereas animism is a recognition that everything whether animate or inanimate has a spiritual essence. So there does happen to still be some ambiguity about the precise nature of Zapotec religion. This is very confusing when we choose to look more closely at the lightning deity called Kosillo. But we can also note that Kosillo is the actual Zapotec word for lightning too. As lightning is closely associated with heavy rainfall, Cosillo is held in very high esteem by the Zapotecs. Cosillo was even viewed as the creator of all things. So in Zapotec mythology, it was described that all things, including the abstract things such as day and night, were created from the breath of Cosillo. The fact that Cosío breathes points us towards the concept of an actual deity as opposed to a spiritual essence. But I also want to be quick to note that the tenure of the Zapotecs was over a long period of time and my studies have reminded me that spiritual beliefs can change over time so it is also possible that while historians bicker with each other over whether zapotec religion was more closely resemblance of animism than polytheism there can be no reason not to consider that it morphs from one form to the other over time representations of cosillo in ancient sculptures are very anthropomorphic with aspects of animals such as a serpent's tongue it is very interesting to note all of these comparisons to Neolithic religion in Eurasia which appeared to progress in a similar way autonomously. We mentioned that the Olmecs practice bloodletting rituals and we can also see that there is evidence of such bloodletting at Zapotec sites also. Excavations at sites such as Quilapan have uncovered caches of rare materials such as jade and obsidian, alongside bird bones and seashells, which can only be assumed to have been part of a ritual. Tombs The excavations at the levelled peak of Monte Alban has uncovered around 170 tombs, and they are considerable in the care that has been taken in creating a significant burial place. Paintings and carvings were found in the tombs and the chambers as well as grave goods. So this was obviously a place of burial for significant members of the Monte Alban society. The excavated tombs have been numbered and they are referred to numerically. Tomb number seven actually contained nine skeletons One of these is believed to be a female skeleton whose body was decorated after death with turquoise and shells. As well as nine deceased individuals, tomb seven also contained a good number of grave goods, including a weaving kit which has sparked great conversation and speculation. The finds were made by the highly respected Mexican archaeologist Alfonso Caso in the 1930s. Casso wrote many books on pre-Columbian, Mesoamerican cultures. It was thanks to Alfonso Casso that the tombs at Monte Alban have been so well catalogued. Casso's work has also helped to make sense of another site in Oaxaca called El Pamillo. El Pamillo is another mound which dates to the Zapotec period and the tombs there demonstrate cultural similarities to the tombs at Monte Alban. And this can point towards an expansion of influence from the cultural capital city of Monte Alban, which supports the idea of Zapotec military expansion by force that can be well represented by the stone carvings at Building J. The bodies in the tombs at El Pamillo were also buried in a ceremonial fashion with decoration and artefacts and it is believed that there was a social class distinction between the elite class and the rest of the population. The site at El Pamillo continues to be carefully excavated. Timeline of the Zapotecs It is incredibly difficult for us to construct a timeline of the Zapotec civilization. It is a little bit sketchy and historians and archaeologists have had to try to apply a degree of logic to the story. Despite it being commonly thought of that the Zapotec civilization emerged at the time of the construction of Monte Alban, we have also discovered that there is a school of thought that suggests that the Zapotecs originated from the settlement of San Jose Magotti, which had already existed for some time before and became the dominant settlement of the Oaxaca Valley region of Mesoamerica where the Olmecs were still dominating the lands to their northeast on the Gulf of Mexico. We can target the middle of the 2nd millennium BCE as a time when the cultures of the Oaxaca Valley started to create settlements that signalled an advance from hunter-gathering to urban life and social stratification. It may have been around the year 750 BCE that a temple at San Jose Magote was destroyed during a military attack and this may have prompted the chiefs at San Jose Magote to start getting serious with their neighbours. Some historians speculate that if there was a considered Zapotec strategy of conquest by force over their neighbours, that the Zapotecs were truly the first Mesoamerican culture to create an imperial realm and that the Olmecs cannot be classified in the same way. I'll leave you to make your own mind up about that one. It would be after this period in around 500 BCE that we can see what appears to be a migration of this proto-Zapotec culture from the declining city of San Jose Magote to the new city of Monte Alban and historians are astonished by the rapidity of cultural advances or at least how rapidly it appears to have advanced. With the emergence of writing and the complexity of the calendar displaying an understanding of astrophysics and mathematics that is comparable to the advances that happened in the Near East around 2000 years earlier, The success of Monte Alban as a new power base for the Zapotecs is very evident. Even if we speculate about the carvings at Building J representing fallen enemies and pointing us towards military might, then the population expansion that has been calculated makes the success of the Zapotec culture at Monte Alban undeniable. Within a couple of hundred years from 500 BCE, the population of Monte Alban was around 5,000 and within another 500 years it rose again to around 17,000 people. The Zapotecs were clearly a modernising culture who outgrew the languishing societies surrounding their immediate area. They deliberately levelled the peak of the Acropolis on which they built their most important ceremonial buildings including temples, tombs and pyramids. At the beginning of the first millennium, it would be the largest city in Mesoamerica and would extend its trade links to a wide area from the earliest Mayan societies to the east to the important emerging city of Teotihuacan to the north. The study of the ancient village of San Martín tilcahete in the Oaxaca Valley is very interesting and a great indication of how guesswork has been key in piecing together the historical timeline of the ancient Zapotecs. As although San Martin Tilcajete is recognized as an ancient Zapotec village, it is believed to have incurred the wrath of Monte Alban as it directly rivaled the oppressive nature of Monte Alban by attempting to create its own sphere of influence. Charles C. Mann, in his book 1491, has stated that the Zapotecs of Monte Alban sacked San Martín Tilcajete in 375 BCE and in 120 BCE, and therefore bringing it under Monte Alban rule. But this is not universally agreed. We can feel confident that the Zapotecs of Monte Alban were the dominant culture of southern Mexican lands going into the first millennium and would exist somewhat unchallenged for some centuries. As the years of the first millennium rolled by, a number of culturally linked city-states emerged in the lands of the Yucatan Peninsula and the modern-day countries of Belize and Guatemala. These would be the earliest Mayan cultures who we will explore in episode 75. To the north, a greater city emerged at Teotihuacan, which is in close proximity to the modern city of Mexico City. We will take a closer look at Teotihuacan in episode 74. Relationships between the Zapotecs and the Mayans and the settlement of Teotihuacan were quite healthy initially. The one culture that did give the Zapotecs the most problems during the early first millennium were the Mixtecs, who were actually closely related ethnically to the Zapotecs and were closely located in the west of the modern Mexican state of Oaxaca, but the Zapotecs were too powerful to allow the Mixtecs to cause them any significant threat. Zapotec ethnicity, culture and language can still be found in Mexico to this very day. So we could continue the story of Zapotec culture beyond the decline of the Zapotecs during the first millennium. Certainly, There was conflict between the Zapotecs and the Mixtecs right through the second millennium, even after the iconic arrival of the European Christopher Columbus in the Americas at the end of the 15th century. The decline of the Classical Age, Imperial Zapotecs, is normally considered to be the decline of Monte Alban. The decline of Monte Alban towards the end of the first millennium is very mysterious. What we can understand about the later centuries of the first millennium is that the Mayan civilization had become quite powerful and influential and the Toltecs had started to emerge as an entity from the area that had been previously dominated by the city of Teotihuacan and this might have put pressures on the amount of influence that the Zapotecs would have on their local area. And it has been speculated that the elite class of the Zapotecs at Monte Alban may have fragmented with some deciding to set up their own autonomous settlements. So the internal differences coupled with the rise of neighbouring cultures turned the Zapotecs from an imperial entity to a bunch of culturally linked villages. The site of Mitla emerged as a religious settlement of the Zapotecs. But after the decline of the secular capital at Monte Alban, Mitla would become a centre of Zapotec culture, but Zapotec influence was not dominant and even the Mixtecs had outgrown the Zapotec culture and to some degree had subjugated them. In fact, as we venture forward to discuss the city of Teotihuacan and then further on in Volume 4 when we introduce the city of Tenochtitlan, which would become the Aztec capital, we can see the presence of Zapotec and Mixtec ethnic groups and cultural artisanry. So although the Zapotec empire declined, the Zapotec culture survived and around half a million Zapotec peoples still live in Mexico to this very day. Well thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast and of course as ever if you would like to support the podcast if you really enjoy the podcast and like to support it and keep it going um, you can do so by going to the the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution towards the podcast. You can do it for as little as $1 a month but if you do... Maybe $10 a month, you get to answer a question on air. And uh, and if you accumulate $100 worth of, um, of donations, as it stands at the moment, you can commission your own episode. So there are some wonderful rewards, including stuff we send through the post, fridge magnets, T-shirts, mugs. Go along to the, patron, uh, the Patreon page and take a look at what you can get. When you sign up um, and make any kind of contribution towards the podcast, you are automatically inducted into the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, as has Anna Taylor this week. And I'm pleased to say uh, that Anna has uh, written an email, um, a very interesting email. Uh, It's quite a long email, so bear with me while I read it out, but I think... Um, Some of the things that she says are are incredibly uh, relevant to today's episode and also um, very thought-provoking in terms of discussing the history of the Americas in general. She's written, Dear Chris, I'm writing to thank you for your wonderful podcast, which I listen to whenever I get the chance from my home in Mexico. I'm originally from Wiltshire in the UK and the only other English I hear spoken here is generally American, so it's great to have someone from Essex in the house. I recently discovered your podcast on Spotify by chance and am now a huge fan. As a busy mum of twins and an older child, I have very little time to do what I really want to do. Sit down and binge the lot uh, chronologically from start to finish. Then find the time to read up more on each subject and get active in the discussions. Instead, I dive into them whenever I get the chance, usually while doing the dishes when everyone is in bed. Either that or I keep pausing the recordings to clean up spilt yoghurt or look at beetles the kids bring in to show me. At some point though my kids will grow up a bit and I will have more time so I look forward to working my way through the podcast one at a time. I was excited to hear you say in an interview uh, that you have a loose 10 year plan for these podcasts and I hope I can support them so that they can continue to grow. Life with twins is uh, can be very restricting, particularly with lockdowns thrown in, so it's been a huge comfort to be able to travel back in time through your recordings. Thank you for throwing me a lifeline during the pandemic. The podcasts are in depth, comprehensive and easy to follow and I'm in awe of how much work and dedication has gone into them. What an undertaking as a result of your phenomenal efforts. I can be a bit lazy and sit back and listen. I admire how you have pursued your passion and have found the way to share it. The podcasts are extremely accessible. I love all the real details you share about yourself whether it's your computer crashing or the creaky chair. No, no, not the creaky chair. It's not quite. Oh no, that's it. I need to go side to side, not backwards and forwards. Uh, you come across as a real person, someone you might bump into down the pub, and that's part of the appeal. It shows us that history is something for everyone, not just the learned academic, and that li- uh, learning is a lifelong journey and doesn't have to be pursued through formal education. My 10-year-old son also loves listening and you are a great role model for him, encouraging him to read more and research anything that interests him. He seems to retain facts that my fuzzy, sleep-deprived brain struggles to assimilate. We are looking forward to learning, uh, to listening to what you have to say about ancient Mexico, particularly the Zapotecs, as we live in Oaxaca and have contact with people who speak Zapotec. Their culture and legacy is very much alive. How wonderful, how wonderful that is. Uh, Yesterday we listened to your podcast on the Olmecs, which we found very informative. My son, who is half Mexican, made the observation that Columbus didn't discover the Americas in 1492, as the Americas were here all along. It would be more accurate to say that Columbus arrived. Being bicultural, we have discussed questioning sources and being aware of viewpoints presented in history even the notion of the history of americas of the americas being divided into pre and post columbian periods is conveniently eurocentric when discussing la venta Civic and ceremonial center. You mentioned it was astonishing that people of the Americas should have learned to build pyramids independently. This struck me. Why are we even looking for a possibility that the peoples of the Americas learned to build pyramids from the Egyptians? I realize listening to your podcast at the question of the Egypt of the Egypt link is one I have only ever heard europeans or americans ask though never archaeologists we don't say isn't it astonishing that stratified cities or agriculture emerged independently in different parts of the world so why is it hard uh, why is it so hard to imagine that human beings are capable of coming up with similar uh, though different solutions to building a monumental structure in another part of the world does the fact that they did not reveal more about what human beings have in common all this got me thinking about whose perspective we are viewing history from. I remember discussing the Egyptian pyramids an, uh, with an archaeologist. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, let's try that again. I remember discussing the, the Egyptian pyramids with an archaeologist guide in Labenta, or possibly Palenque. I can't recall which. He smiled knowingly and said, "They had a similar idea to us." without any serious consideration being given to the possibility of a link. Thank you for waking up a part of my brain that has been dormant for a few years and providing interesting discussion topics in our home. We look forward to continuing our journey in time across the world through your podcasts. Anna Taylor. Uh, Anna, one of the best emails that I've probably uh, ever read, I think, that has been sent through to me, and um, I think particularly... Uh, the point about um, referring to America as um, pre-Columbian um, is, uh, yes, it certainly is a nod to um, when Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas and how European culture changed the Americas forever and rather sadly um, supplanted many of the indigenous cultures of the americas but let's not forget this happened um pretty much in every non-european continent in the world um however um obviously the americas was so um detached from other from from eurasian culture let's say so but i mean in terms of um the significance of the event of the americas um yes certainly um when we talk about um, Columbus discovering the Americas as, as something uh, glorious, um, it, you know, certainly from the eyes of the Americans, it wasn't glorious at all. Um, and for me, I think it's um, when I hear pre-Columbian America, um, that you know, that sort of excites me because we're talking about an America that was independent and autonomous. and um, and if you ask me, um personally, I do think the Americas and uh, you know all of, all of their culture was autonomous, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. But of course, I'm just a humble podcaster um, attempting to uh, put forward all points of view for discussion. And so I'm so thrilled, Anna, that you are discussing these things in your household as you should be and formulating your own opinion, which is just as valuable as mine or anyone else's, uh, as is your son's, who's going to uh, ultimately inherit all of this knowledge and discussion from us. So um, what a wonderful email and uh, what a fascinating discussion point, um, I must admit, Um to really terrific to look at um, the different perspectives of Columbus's discovery of the Americas, not actually being a discovery, um, whether it was glorious or whether it was um, not glorious at all. Um, what do you think? Write in and let me know. But uh, thank you so much, Anna. I received uh, another email from uh, Levi, who's put, Best podcast online, period. I listen to an episode every night as I go to sleep. I imagine you are there, beside my bed, reading to me. I hold out my hand, but you don't take it. Why? And uh, then he calls me a name. He calls me a name. So I'm not going to read that out. It's not a very nice name. Um... John Morris has written in and put uh, recently found the podcast and I want to thank you for taking this project on. i started at the beginning and have caught up to your Mesopotamian episodes. I'm trying to read a book about the subject matter at the same time as listening, so slow and steady for now. Eventually, I hope to catch up. I appreciate your dedication and wit. As an aside, a few years ago I taught my son to say porky pies instead of lies. So when we were listening to your recap of 2018 and you said Piltdown Man was the biggest porky pie, it made us chuckle. We don't hear that very often over here in the States. All the best of luck, John in Um Yeah, I, I forgot that I even used that expression. It's most unlike me to to you know try and avoid... Uh, very English phrases. But, uh, like the, the 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 majority of my listeners are from the USA, so it doesn't do for me to be um, using uh, exclusively English phrases. But um, I think sometimes they can be quite entertaining, can't they? I think uh, if if you're not used to hearing them, porky pie being a lie is uh, you know it's a it's a form of Cockney rhyming slang, you know, which is like sort of quite commonly heard. Uh, in and around the area of the UK where i live uh, and uh, you know to a degree it's um it's heard uh, in and around the UK in general um so it's almost sort of been um in in some areas of the UK it's it's been uh, embraced and and brought into to, to other areas uh methods of slang so Interesting, and maybe maybe we'll have to make an episode about Cockney rhyming slang at some point. Maybe oh, maybe an unscripted episode. Maybe that's an idea. Uh, but thanks for the email, John. Very kind. Well, I, I think I think that's it for this week. I think I'm going to wrap it up. Um, thank you very much for listening. Next week we're staying in the Americas. Uh, we're going to be moving into the area of Mexico City. So we're just going to be moving up a little bit further north, and and this. Incredible city that emerged, Teotihuacan. It's quite unlike any other city that we've we've sort of come across and uh, deserves a bit of exploration. Of course, uh, you can still visit it to this day um, and uh, the vast area of which it covers. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating city and uh, I can't wait to talk more about it next week. So until next week. Thank you so much um, for listening this week. Don't forget, uh, rate and review the podcast and do consider um, joining our History of the World Illuminati by making a a contribution to keep us going. Uh, But until next week, uh, be good. Come to the History of the World and join all the other hot worlders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book? and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.